Hi, I'm Kimmy Fleming. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. So, Kimmy, before we introduce our guest, I want to welcome you to your first episode. This is awesome. Thanks, Wendy. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, It's an honor to be on the podcast with you. And I had a lot of fun on our first episode. That's great. Elena Perea is the director of the Psychiatry Residency and Rural Psychiatry Residency Programs and faculty for the Consultation Liaison Fellowship at the Mountain Area Health Education Center in Asheville, North Carolina, a new position since we spoke with her in the fall of 2020. As we've heard from many of our listeners, a lot changed for Dr. Perea during and after the pandemic. So we thought we'd check in with her, especially as a big part of her focus is now developing the next generation of psychiatrists. Let's have a listen. Elena Perea. Wendy Dean. You're back. And better than ever. (laughs) That's super. Um, And I'm going to introduce you to Kimmy Fleming, who is our new co-host. Hi, Kimmy. Hi, Elena. Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. I'm happy to be here. I heard a lot in your first uh, first episode with the podcast about when you were coming back. Oh, yeah. So it seems like a long-awaited return. Yeah, that, that the infamous uh, podcast in which the F word was dropped. That's right, <laughs> yes. No, I think maybe the first one, but not the last one. Oh, I'm not the only one anymore. No. Good, good. No. Nope. Yeah, so tell us what's happened Give us a brief update since we talked two years ago, three three years ago, three years ago. Oh my God, can it really be that long? It was a long time ago. Okay, so when last we spoke, um, I was hospital employed and feeling a lot of distress about my situation and the situation of, in general, the American medical system. And... um, The one bright spot in my life was that I had uh, been involved with the starting of a new residency program, um, and I've been really quite uh, passionate about graduate medical education throughout my career. Uh, The first 10 years of my career were spent in academic centers, and um, part of the idea when I moved out here was that I would be helping to bring some academia to Southern Appalachia. And uh, since we last spoke, I have left the hospital employment job to take uh, the residency training director position in the residency that I was involved with. And I love it. It's great. That's fabulous. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we need, we need really passionate folks who are bringing the next generation along. Um, I I can't agree more. I think that if we're going to save this, it's going to have to come from the next generation. What do we need to be doing? I don't actually know how to move forward, actually. Um, But I know it's probably not going to be fixed by old people like me. Um, (laughs) I, I just know that we have to train people that are passionate about it. I, a meme comes to mind. Actually, it's not a meme. It's It was a short poem about a haunted house, and it said something to the effect of, you know, you see the haunted house, and you, you think, wouldn't it just be easier to burn it to the ground? And then you realize there are children inside. 
Yeah. And that's sort of how I feel about the American medical system is it's this big, creaky, dilapidated haunted house that's a health hazard to the neighborhood and everything else. But, you know, there are dependents in there that I feel rather um, beholden to, responsible for. And, you know, as much as I think a lot of us feel like we'd like to just throw our hands into the air and walk away from it, we find that we can't because um, we actually got into this because we love it. We we wanted to do something good for uh, our fellow man. So I have transitioned from just being part of trying to do something good for fellow man because that wasn't working for me because I often felt like I couldn't do that and transitioned towards uh, trying to train the next generation who will hopefully pick up where I leave off and also they will maybe take care of me and my dotage. So when you talk about that, the environment that they're coming into is very different than the environment you and I came into. Oh my God, yes. And so as the person who is currently, presently tasked with preparing them for that new world, what are you what are you planning to do differently or what what do you think needs to happen differently for them to be prepared for the environment that they're coming out into that you didn't have and you've had to do sort of your own your own education well and part of it is the time in which they're training um but part of it is also where they're training um so the time in which they're training, this is this is post-COVID world. Um, some of my residents didn't really have in-person third or fourth years of medical school, which is a completely bizarre thing and also has really affected their learning and like where I have to meet them when they come to training. Um, but they have watched as emergency department censuses have gone from you know, most of the beds are full to, for example, the emergency department that I work in from time to time has 95 beds and they regularly run a census of 140 people. Mm -hmm. uh, people are literally intubated in hallways, emer like emergent cases are, are being missed or, or neglected and time to care is, is gone up. Um, and I'm seeing people burn out and be unable to continue like wondering if medicine is even a long-term career choice that's sustainable. Um, and I think that these, these residents, medical school graduates are seeing that and choosing their career path differently than any of us did um, when, when we went into the match so many years ago. Right. Uh, so I think that there is a change in emphasis. Um, it's gone from prestige to uh, quality of life. Like I think that psychiatry used to be thought of as a less competitive subspecialty. Um, I don't know why it's the best subspecialty, but I think now it's much more competitive and we've seen the average board scores go up and, um, you know, there are no open spots anymore. And be, because I think 
in general, and this is a gross overgeneralization, but I think psychiatrists have a better work-life balance than many other subspecialties in medicine. And, and, and I think that that's, that's what we're seeing. We're not going to, I read recently that there's going to be a shortage of 30,000 general surgeons within the next 10 years. Correct. Because who wants to do that training? Well, and, and also we're going to need a whole lot more when all of the baby boomers reach their maximal healthcare usage years, which is every one of them will be Medicare eligible by 2030. Yep. So, and you're seeing that that happen too with, um, I, I think that salaries are changing somewhat as well. Um, so like when I left residency, my first job out of residency, I made $120,000 a year, which is not a lot. And now I make much more than that. And it's, it's not because I'm working for a richer environment or that they, you know, your per year of service is actually all that much. It's just that I think that we're seeing um, different value placed on, on different things. And I think that that that's affecting the way people are deciding what to do as well. So that is one thing that is like driving people into medicine. But the other thing is like regionally where we are right now, um, I think I live in one of the most under served places in the country. So I'm having to teach my residents, like, this is how you should do it in an ideal practice, but where we live, you can't, right? Right. Talk about, you know, Suboxone for all. Well, but who's accepting patients? You can't get people to prescribe Suboxone even if the X waiver has gone away, you know, because like people don't want to treat that population. It's so it's, I mean, you teach them the ideal and then you teach Mm -hmm. them the real. Mm -hmm. Which serves them when they go out into some of those, those areas that we thought we never imagined that there would be shortages in some areas. And yet there are 50% of the counties in the U S don't have a psychiatrist and half of those don't take insurance at all. So, yeah. Elena, I'm curious if you could speak to, so residents coming through now are starting to, they're starting to come from Gen Z. So we're, we're having younger folks coming through residency. They come from a different cultural context. They grew up in a, in a different environment than, than those that we did. And I'm, I'm curious if you could, if you could share, um, what are the things that they care about? How do they see, you know, medicine as a structure, you know, maybe differently than cohorts um, ahead of them, especially, you know, we're talking about moral injury. So thinking about, you know, how do they, how do they understand the business side of, of medicine? How are they approaching that? Well, um, they know a lot more about billing than I ever did which is bizarre. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're being taught, you know, even during their intern years, they're asking me questions about, well, how did you bill for this? And what makes you able to bill for that? And why didn't you bill this? Because the reimbursement rate's higher. And I'm like, what, what, what have you Googled this? I I don't understand. Um, so I, I think that they're much more aware of that 
than I ever was or ever will be. Um, I also think that there's a movement in this generation towards healthcare being a human right and towards wanting a system that would provide for all comers because it's really frustrating. Maybe I'm being really optimistic here, but I think that that's the trend. It's really frustrating to not be able to provide uh, evidence-based care to a population because they don't have the right insurance. Yeah. So one of the questions that I think about a lot is we now have 70% of physicians who are employed by hospitals or, or large practices. And when you get into an employed situation, your ability to innovate and to change practices and to think of ways to provide better care for your patients is constrained because those big organizations tend to work within bureaucracies, which get concretized. And so one of the questions I have that keeps going through my mind is, if we want medicine to continue being innovative, and I, I saw a graph yesterday that suggested very much that we were no longer innovative in healthcare, how do we instill that sort of entrepreneurial spirit into our residents and kind of start the fire for them of, I love what I do. It's a little bit of a mess right now. I want to leave it better than I found it. How do we light that fire? Um, I think that taking the profit out of medicine and sorry, my communist underpants are showing, but um, I, I think that you know, when you take the profit out of patient care, you can make systems better. I, I have frequently run into, like, for example, collaborative care, um, the collaborative care model of managing patients with depression and anxiety from a primary care setting. Um, so, a psychiatrist doesn't have to see the patient. The psychiatrist reviews the patient with a therapist or a nurse manager who's seeing the patient, and the um, the outcomes are vastly improved over standard care, care as usual. So, like the patient going to see a psychiatrist or the primary care physician managing the patient, um, and. I tried to set that model up at one of my um, prior places of employment and was met with, well, it costs too much to hire the care manager. This is what our out-of-pocket costs would be. And, and in spite of the fact that the evidence shows that, yeah, but you save this much in emergency department visits and admissions and yada, yada, over time, um, saved money is not the same as money spent. And it's, I think it's really hard for these for-profit um, behemoths, for lack of a better word, to, to look down the road and see that. And I think, I don't, I don't know what, I, I'm not really answering your question. I'm doing a poor job with this. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I think one of the challenges for those big behemoths, um, institutions is that by keeping people out of the hospital, you're actually working against 
their motivations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they want to keep heads in beds mm-hmm. um, and they want the downstream revenue. And so better care isn't always, they say that's what they want, but it doesn't actually work to their top line revenue. Right. Uh, one of the big hospital chains, I'm not naming names, uh, their motto is always for the patient first, but when it comes down to it, they are le- legally obligated to put their shareholders first. Correct. So it's it's really it, like you have to disentangle the money from the care or people aren't going to, we're going to continue to lose years of life. Or you have to start acknowledging that that there is a limit, that sometimes enough is enough, that there's a limit to how much we should be extracting from the system, that all, that profit as a whole isn't bad just by by what it is. It's more how much profit right. is okay. Right. And it's, um, you know, people say that if you go to a nationalized health program, physicians won't make as much money. Well, that's probably true, but um, how how much money is enough money, right? Like the, all of the studies show that n- more money over $100,000 a year doesn't equal more happiness unless you have horses. And then they're... <laughs> right. So I think, right. I think maybe you shouldn't be saying this. I'm just going to say I that. Should. I'm just going to say that. Maybe not. But, <laughs> but I mean, the, the data is there and far be it from me to practice non-evidence-based economics. And... I, I, okay, then yeah. I'm going to hold you to that if we ever get to that point. Because, <laughs> and I and I think it, even though you know, sometimes what we want to do is is have the ideal, a picture of the ideal institution that you'd like to have, so that we can at least get close to it and negotiate towards it. Um, I can't even ima- I can't begin to imagine dismantling um, our the capitalist medical complex, and and nor do I necessarily think we altogether have to. No, I I agree with you because it, this is this is where like the we come back to the haunted house metaphor, right? Like you can't burn it to the ground. Right. I mean, beyond there being children inside, there it's the the structure is just too complex, right? Like you can light the kitchen on fire, but the rest of it's not going to burn because it's too big or or whatever. Like because it's paying the fire company to put out the fire, right? <laughs> so there's there's got to be some some kind of structural fix like you can't just band-aid this because it's just going to continue to snowball and i i don't know what the answer is i don't think it's going to come from physicians so I, i think um i think what happened here is the thing that always happens with physicians is i ask a question about how are we going to fix the problem that's local and we all go oh but the other problem is just too big i can't possibly fix Mm, right i can't possibly fix it because i can't fix all of it and so I'm going to bring you back again because you have residents that I know you want the best for them and you want the best training for them. And so I just wonder, how do we do better as a community? You know, I think I think I should put this in the context of we're dropping this on National Suicide Awareness Month and just after National Physician Suicide Awareness Day, your psychiatrist... We know that attending physicians have a very high rate of death by suicide, but that residents and medical students are actually even less happy than attending physicians. So, and part of it 
are these challenges. They're, they're working so incredibly hard. And it's hard for them to see a future that looks like what they hope it will look like. So how do we do better as a medical community with the next generation? Right. And so there I went down, you know, the national structural rabbit hole when really the answer probably lies in our own communities. Um, and the residency was started to populate Western North Carolina with psychiatrists. Um, and we have managed to keep the majority of our graduates um, here in Western North Carolina. And they are staying because they have a love for their colleagues in other specialties and the land and the people that live here and maybe a little bit the people that taught them. And I think that there's a lot to be said for us as physicians coming together as a community. I think, you know, sometimes we get so siloed in, oh, this isn't a psychiatry issue. Family medicine should be managing this person's lipids. Or, you know, this this isn't this isn't a physical problem. It's all in your head. Go see psych. And we all get sort of like stuck in our own lanes. And I mean, yes, we should be in our own lane. Like I should not be prescribing pressors. That is not my job. But at the same time, we should be, we really, I think that if we just embrace each other um, a little bit more and ask each other how, how we can be helpful to each other, um, I think things will go better. And it, that, that siloing, that sense of uh, be, being isolated from one's family and from, from others in our profession and feeling like you're alone, like nobody else could possibly be experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing, that's what leads to the hopelessness that I think leads to the lack of a, a vision for a way forward and can really kill people. I appreciate you using the lane metaphor, staying in your lane. And I, I wanted to take that to like a different highway for a minute, staying in your lane. One thing that I, I have noticed in working with physicians is, and I love my physician colleagues, you all are a compliant bunch by and large and do what you are told and, and you know, tend to, to do that without putting up too Wait, much. Wait, have we met? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I would put you on the outside, on the outside of that experience that, that I have had. Uh, but there is this, this idea, this, this attitude that I have seen uh, in academic med medicine where I've worked, um, you know, which is I am a physician, I stay in my lane, I don't, you know, maybe get into the administrative lane or ask too many questions about, well, why can't you fund this and why aren't we funding that and kind of using, using your power as a physician to advocate for the change that you need. I know you used the example in the last podcast of dialectical behavior therapy and how effective that is as an intervention and how it is not funded. So I'm wondering in your role as a training director, how are you preparing your residents to swerve lanes a little bit in, in the hospital system, advocate for the things that we know are effective that may not reimburse very well? Well, I mean, we're doing a really good job of teaching our residents psychotherapy. And, you know, every now and again, the question comes up whether we should even be training physicians to do psychotherapy because there are entire other degrees that people 
do psychotherapy from that don't cost as much as a medical degree. Um, so we are continuing to put a lot of emphasis on multiple psychotherapy modalities in our residency and telling them that, yes, you can do this job. Uh, we are also, you know, advocating for residents to come up with their own quality improvement and research agendas within the, their four years with us. Um, not everybody is going to be a lane swerver. Some people just want to do 20-minute med checks, and that's okay, too, because we need them as well. But, you know, every now and again, a resident comes along, and you know that they're going to be um, great, and you can just sort of get them started on the path and get them connected within the community to the, the places that, you know, really excite them or need the help or both. So it's a, it's a lot about connections and in, interpersonal connections, I think. Shortly after we talked with you last time, we talked with Will Torrey, who was one of my mentors in residency. And one of the things that he talked about was developing each resident to their potential. Just like you raise your kids to their potential, you develop your residents to their potential. And like you said, some of them are going to be great therapists, great mm -hmm. psychotherapists, and combined treatment is actually fantastic. Some of them are going to be powerful advocates. They mm -hmm. are not going to be able to keep quiet, and they're going to spend their days on the hill with, or at, their, at the state house, and um, being able to make those connections for them, I think, no matter what sparks their interest. But helping them understand all the different options that are available to them is really, really critical. And also being able to help them see that it's not scary to cross over into talking with other people, like, you know, with other specialists and, and collaborating in various ways. I agree strongly. Yeah. yeah. Elena Perea. Thank you so much for coming back and talking to us. This was fabulous. Thanks, Elena. I hope I uh, hope I hit the high points for you. You did. It was great. Excellent. Kimmy, when I listened to Elena, the thing that I realized, and I mentioned it during the episode, but I think it's worth repeating that what I heard in her responses to some of our questions was that the problems in healthcare are so big that it feels to the individual clinician on the front line like they're almost overwhelming to the point that it's hard to see things that any of us can do to change the day-to-day. -day. It's almost like we have to change the whole of healthcare before we can start feeling any relief. That's absolutely right. It seemed like what Dr. Perea was telling us was you know, in her residency program, she was talking about teaching them the ideal and the real. And that also got me thinking about this point that you are making, which is if we get to the point where we're thinking about the entire system and having to make changes to the entire system, it can make us feel really helpless and ineffective and make it so that we're unable to affect change where we are, where we might be able to affect change. Yeah, that whole thing of all change is local, all politics are local. Mm -hmm. And that healthcare systems are made up of people, right? And if we can change one of them at a time, that makes progress. 
That's right. And I, I think that it is helpful to remember that any one of us in any position that we are in, we have the capacity to affect change because the people who make the decisions are people and our relationships are important. Yeah. The other thing that she was talking about were her frustrations and her residents' frustrations with the very limited resources that they have in their community mm-hmm. for mental health care. And I, I think that probably resonates with people across the country the ability to access mental health care right now is so constrained that I hear frustrations about it every day. I mean, the three of us, all all three of us being mental health care providers, I feel like that was a point in the discussion where we were all nodding our heads and resonating with, you know, you have a person coming in in front of you, they have, you know, a set of, of problems and you know, as a provider, there is a treatment out there that is effective for them, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in your community or their insurance doesn't cover it. Or for some other reason, it's not accessible. That is really challenging as a clinician to see that day in and day out and have to tell people there is a treatment, but I can't get you to it. Yeah. It reminded me of Leon Haley, who is the CEO down at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. That's a safety net hospital. And he realized that a big part of making his workforce more effective and making them more satisfied and and more engaged at work was in bringing in more resources. So he viewed his job not only as working at the hospital, but also working in very sort of novel places like on the board of the local electric company and other local local places where he could have influence and where he could help reach patients who could also drive resources from the city from the state towards his organization and i think it, it just reminded me that in healthcare we we sort of need to Both think about how we can manage with fewer resources, but also what are the ways that we can teach the next generation to think creatively about how to approach these resource constraints? Absolutely. I think that it is entirely necessary in this in this day uh, in in the way that our healthcare is funded and the way that it is structured to explicitly provide education to our medical residents about the business side of, of healthcare, about uh, how resources are allocated, about how these bureaucracies work, about how funds move, and about how uh, how new programs are stood up, and all of the all of the moving pieces that go with that. I feel that in in denying them that that piece of their education, we are setting setting them up to uh, again to feel ineffective and to feel like they can't affect change. And as you were saying in the in the episode. It's important that we continue to have an entrepreneurial spirit in medicine. And all of this, you know, to me, seems to go to that place. How can we empower uh, our medical residents and trainees um, to seize that entrepreneurial spirit, understand the resources, and be creative and flexible with how they are approaching uh, these new programs? And one of the things that it reminded me of was the conversation about how we can do better for the next generation and how we can um, protect them. And that sense of coming together, which is important, and, and sort of looking out for each other and checking in with each other, it's all important. 
But I also think equally important is not just being friendly, but about being really fierce advocates of each other Mm -hmm. to change the status of our healthcare system or systems. Yeah, some some of the most powerful interactions that you know that that I've had that have really led to change. Uh, you know, and the systems that I've been in are conversations that I've had with colleagues at different institutions, asking them, "What did you do? How did you get it done? You know, tell me, t- tell me about that." And just share, <laughs> sharing those, sharing sharing those stories, it, it, it tends to spark light and think about it that way. And I, I think about the the generative power of this kind of community, a community where we are recognizing that we need one another in many different ways, and one of them is. You know, and helping one another to figure out what is effective and getting the resources that we need to provide our patients the care that they need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, Kimmy, do you want to read us out? I would love to. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well. Stay well.